a couple of weeks ago, I, I let y'all know that it was my intention last week for us to camp out in the upper room for a while. Uh, that, that time that Jesus spent with the disciples prior to his being turned over to the Jewish authorities. We're going to start that today. All right. Um, now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, uh, Matthew tell us what happened in the upper room. Neither does Mark, neither does Luke. So, if we're going to study the upper room discourse, as most people call it, we have to go to John's gospel. All right, so go to John's gospel and find chapter 14, because that's where we're going to be reading, and I know that's what you're all doing, except for everybody who's distracted by baby Jackie back there. Um, yeah, there are a particular group of people that fall into that category. Um, of the four Gospels, now this may be wrong of me to say, I don't know, but I'm going to say it. four Gospels, I would have to say that I think John is my favorite. Um, the reason I say that is because, at least as far as I'm concerned, John is the most personal and picture of probably because of the nature between John and Jesus. John refers to himself by what name in his gospel? The disciple that Jesus loved. Okay? So that indicates there was a very close personal friendship there between Jesus and John. So John, he emphasizes Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as he he doesn't he's not really concerned with Jesus as the deliverer which is more he he's not really concerned with Jesus as the the lamb or or Jesus as the king like Mark and Luke he's concerned with Jesus as the promised messiah uh it's not to say that he doesn't talk about those things that's just not John's emphasis um so when we look at the upper room discourse, it actually starts in chapter 13. We're not going to, to go back to chapter 13, um, mainly because we just did the Lord's Supper, and it would be really awkward to jump backwards just for a week. So In chapter 13, though, there's something really important that happens. All right, in John chapter 13, Jesus the disciples, in the upper room, Jesus gets up from the table and he gets a bowl of water. He walks particularly a task that tended to for a household servant or by the youngest member of the group. All right, now when I was looking up um, as part of the Seder that they have today that I told you we're not 100% sure applies to what Jesus did, there is actually, in in some super orthodox copies, there is actually a period for foot washing. That's actually part of the meal. And so that picture of Jesus taking care of us is something that's, that's really personal and it's really sacrificial. I've had some ask why we don't do foot washing as part of the Lord's Supper service. 
for that number one, I ain't washing y'all's feet. That lines that I draw, that's I, I spent time with y'all's feet and not happening. And I'm looking at that guy right in the center. Um Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um flash PTSD. The second reason is because I think the, the, the foot washing ceremony that we have in John's gospel is descriptive, not prescriptive. Jesus doesn't say that we have to do that. He doesn't command us to do that. He gives an example of what it means to care for people sacrificially. Um, I, I love um, his, his best way that the, the sacrificial caring aspect of the foot washing ceremony Go go to a hospice and tend to the needs of somebody who's laying in hospice waiting for their death. That's the equivalent of foot washing. It, you know, we don't walk around barefoot in the dust down here. Some of y'all walk around barefoot too much, but we don't walk barefoot in the dirt everywhere we go in modern society. Foot washing was a necessity back then. It's not so much of a necessity today for some of you. <laughs> okay, I'd probably get in trouble if I brought bleach to the foot washing uh, ceremony. But Jesus does this to show the disciples what it means to care for people. Um, and, and then he goes through the the ceremony of the meal and Judas's departure and all of these things are in John chapter thirteen. And then after John leaves, or not John, after Judas leaves, Jesus spends time teaching the disciples. And it, the teaching really starts in earnest at the beginning of chapter 14, right after uh, the, the, last, the last paragraph, chapter 13, is where, where Peter finally has enough and he says, not only will I follow you, but I'll follow you to the death. Peter says this, and Jesus says, no... No, you won't. The The sun isn't even going to come up yet before you've denied me three times. The rooster hasn't even crowed before you're going to deny me three times. So, this, that's the stage for chapter 14. And and before we, we actually read our passage, which is actually towards the end of chapter 14, I want you to think about everything that has happened so far in Jerusalem. As they're traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus tells them again that he's going to be turned over, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die. They come into town, the people that shout and, and jump for joy and, and holler and everything, you know, Hosanna to the son of David, rescue us, please deliver us from the Romans. And then Jesus does his teaching and, and chases the money changers out of the temple and all these things. And then here in the meal... He says one of them is going to be trained. And they're starting to catch on. Because Peter says, I will follow you even to the death. Jesus says, no, you won't. Trust me. When we see all of this taking place, you might get a sense of the mood in the upper room. It's quiet. It's gloomy. It's sullen. It's 
there, there's a cloud over everything that has happened because they're starting to put all the pieces together that, you know, Jesus, he might really be serious about the stuff that's about to happen. What are we going to do? How do we handle this? How do we deal with this? And so it's in this gloom that Jesus makes a statement to the disciples. We're going to look at uh, starting in verses 27, or starting with verse 27, going through verse 29. That's going to be our passage this morning. If you all would stand with me for it. Now remember, what candle did we light this Peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater. Let's pray. Father, we want to grab a hold of that idea of peace in our lives. Jesus said he gives us peace. Help us as we study this morning to understand how that peace can impact we live, the way we operate today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, I 27, that's where but now I'm going to throw it in reverse and back up to verse 1 uh, because that sets the context for this piece. You've got 11 people sitting around the table trying to wrap their heads around the calamity that uh, even old, brash, loud, without putting gear, Peter, declared, I'm going to follow. Jesus says, no, by the sunrise, you're going to take me three times make Peter do that. And to understand how this could be. They're, they're just, they're wrapping, they're trying to wrap their heart, their, their hearts and their heads around what is about to happen. And Jesus says in, in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now I read that and I'm trying to picture this, this atmosphere in the room. I'm trying to picture these 11 guys looking Trying to wrap kids around this, and Jesus afraid. It's like trying to put out a four alarm fire with a five pound fire extinguisher. For the three years leading up to this, these men have given up everything. They left their families, they left their friends, they left their jobs. In the case of Matthew, think about Matthew for just a second. What was his? Jesus called him. Who did he work for? Roman. I think they felt about somebody walking in. Yeah. Okay. Matthew is not going to. Um, already hate Jews. Nothing except Jesus and these guys sitting in the room with him. 
And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why not? We've given up everything to you. We, we've traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee to Jerusalem to Galilee to Jerusalem to Galilee and back to Jerusalem. We've listened to you teach. We've watched you work miracles. We've heard you teach with authority not matched by anybody. We have seen you stand in the temple yard toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, priests, and scribes. Just told us that the day is going to be destroyed. The only thing we have that is stability is you. And now you die. Let your hearts be troubled? Sure. Piece of cake. Right? Yeah, no. Look at how he finishes it up. Believe in God. Believe in me. You trust God. You say you trust God. Trust me. The whole foundation that he gives for them to peace in this period of turmoil is their faith in God. James, Jesus' brother, Jesus' little brother, half. Remember what James says about faith? You have faith? I'll show you my faith by what? My works, the things that I do. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe in me, show it. If you indeed made this statement, the living God, show it, live it, put feet to the words that you're saying. Jesus wants the disciples to demonstrate their faith by trusting that Jesus is doing God's will, and they trust God's will. Now, this is not an easy thing to do. There is <laughs> there is one command. I haven't this, but but just going through my head, this the gospels. There is one command that is given to the disciples, to the followers of Jesus, to God's people more often than just about every other command. Yeah, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. If you go throughout Scripture, when, when the angels appear, what's the first thing they tell everybody? Don't be afraid. Because our is to be a fearful people. Because we like to be in control of things. Yeah. Now, most of you know that for the last four or five months now, since beginning of September anyways, I've been seeing a therapist because of my anxiety issues. And in probably our second or third meeting, we started talking about that, that issue of control. And I was bold enough to make the statement, I'm really not that kind of a control freak. I don't have to be in control of everything. And then I started driving home. It's wow. Now that I put my mind to it, I am beyond a control freak. I want to be in control of every circumstance in my life. I don't like surprises. 
I don't like any kind of surprise. I don't like surprise parties. I don't like surprise gifts. I like to know what I'm getting before I get it, even at Christmas time. Right. As a matter of fact, I went with Liam and bought it. I like to be in control. Why do I have such a problem with other drivers on the road? Because that's a variable I can't control. Can't make them speed up. I can't make them use their turn signals, though I have that ability. Jesus told the disciples, don't be anxious for anything. And he gave a couple of examples. So that the flower field don't have to worry about where, and yet God adorns them. No other thing can match their beauty. Look, wildflowers, just wildflowers. I'm not talking cultivated gardens. I'm not talking about rose gardens and their their walk. Wildflowers, they're gorgeous. Who tends them? God does. Right? Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat, Jesus says. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. The birds don't worry about the, what they're going to eat. Right? Birds eat what birds eat. Hummingbirds eat nectar. Red-tailed hawks eat squirrels. Who provides them the food? God does. He set all this stuff up, and he walked away from it. The clockmaker God, nation, out of Thomas Jefferson. By the way, Thomas Jefferson may have been a great man. He was a terrible theologian. You want to know what he used for a highlight? God is involved in everything that goes on. In this world, Paul, here, here's how we can, we can understand this a little bit. When he's in Athens and he's speaking at the Areopagus, talking to them about how religious they are, and he's trying to introduce them to this God that they don't know. And he says, look, I walk the and you've got God to Zeus, you've got a God to Athena, you've got Aphrodite, you've got you've got, you've got a statue to man, and just in case you forgot a statue over here that says to an unknown God. Right? And then he introduces them to God. But he says, your own poets in him, we move and we have our being. That's a Greek philosopher who says that we exist in God. Now, that Greek philosopher is not necessarily saying the right stuff. But, you know, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. Hang on a second. It'll sink in. <laughs> okay. He got that one right. If for one minute God went on vacation, the entirety of creation would cease to exist. God sustains us by his existence. This, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's, don't be afraid about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about, don't worry about circumstances. Why? Because they're not outside of 
God's control. What is outside of God's control? Nothing. Yay. Right? What is outside of my control? Everything. I, I will tell you how much control I have, okay? This shirt, my camouflage for this morning, was not the shirt that I set out to wear last night. I am that much of a control freak. I set my clothes out the night before, okay? So the shirt that I had planned to wear, I hung it up in the bathroom, so when I got done getting ready this morning, I could put my shirt on, out to the kitchen to take my and there's a, a dirty frying pan on the stove that we had used to make tacos last night. So taco meat inside the pan. And it's a big, because we feed like 32 people at our house. 20 of them are sitting back there. Um, so I, I grabbed this pan by the handle to walk it over to the sink. Stove. Carrying it, the weight of the pan brushes my shirt. And now I have a slice of taco grease on my shirt. I can't control anything. I couldn't control a fresh pan in my hand. This world that is within my control. And because we are people who want to be in control, and trust me, I'm not that kind of person. I challenge you. <laughs> you are that kind of person. Dollars to donuts, every one of you is going to change your climate when you get into your vehicle today. You're going to get in, you're going to start the car, then the first five minutes you're either going to touch temperature control or the fan. Why? I know that. We are that kind of people, and we don't like not being in control. We get Anxious, and I'm not talking about clinical anxiety, something that I have some recent experience with. I'm talking about st- stupid worry, crazy, the kind of worry that makes you stay up at night. Think number one, and the scheme of things don't mean anything. Who you can't do anything about anyways? Says what? Are you going to grow an extra inch because you're worrying? No. <laughs> it did work. got a lot of worry to do right are you gonna get one are you one day longer by worrying no in fact we have medical science that shows it's the opposite the more you worry the worse it is on your body here's the good thing about worry because we are prone to do it the reason we're commanded not to do it is because it's our natural state. In case you've forgotten when I said this, we are never commanded to do anything in Scripture that we would naturally do. Think about that for a second. Let that, let that orbit and sink in. There is nothing that we are commanded in Scripture that we would normally do. So when Jesus says, don't worry, that's because our natural state is worry. But there is a good thing about it. That good thing is that for the child of God, when we start to worry, we have an opportunity to exercise faith. We have an opportunity to let go of the circumstances and trust that God's going to take care of us. Now, 
How easy is that to do? It's not. If it was easy, it would come natural to us. We wouldn't be commanded to do it. Let me go back to Jesus here. I haven't even hit verse 2 of chapter 14 yet. I told you we're going to camp out here for a while. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Or if you like the old English, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Okay? Why do modern translations translate it as rooms? Well, because it's a whole lot easier for me to understand a house that has a lot of rooms than a house that has a lot of mansions. Right? But the idea is there's space for all of God's children. And we're not going to... I'd be okay living in a garden shed on God's estate. But we don't have to. Jesus says, fast forward a little bit, he says he's going to prepare a place for the disciples. And Thomas, now once Peter gets a break, okay, Peter is, Peter is probably trying to figure out how to keep his mouth shut so he doesn't deny Jesus three times. Because this is the one guy who's going to try to prove Jesus wrong, right? So Peter, for the next however many hours, is he's probably sitting here I'm not going to talk. That'll do it. Thomas, we we call him Doubting Thomas. And most of the time we call him Doubting Thomas because of the room which freaks everybody out, right? Thomas is not going to believe unless I can put my right in that hole in his side. says, okay, right? You know what Scripture doesn't tell us that Thomas did? It doesn't ever say that he touched those holes in Jesus' hands or or the, the, the hole in his side. It doesn't say that. When Jesus says, I'm right here, Thomas falls on his knees and worships. And he actually made one of the greatest statements of faith in the post-resurrection period. Personally here, I think we see a little bit more of Thomas's doubt right here than we do there. Because, okay, I've got a couple of guys, one of them being Peter, who comes back to the upper room and says, Jesus' body must have been resurrected. I can understand Thomas. Unless unless he shows up here and I can know that it's Jesus, I'm not going to believe that business. That's just, that's a little bit too much. Here, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. This is verse 5. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? How can we know how to get to this place? Now, I want to invite you to examine your 21st century brain for just a minute. All right? Just for a second, because when I read this, my gut instinct reading this passage as I'm going through is that the disciples have got to be the 11 densest people on the face of the planet. Right, 
That's my gut reaction. Okay? Because Jesus has told them that he's about He's told them he's about to die. He's told them one of them is going to turn him over to the authorities so he can die. He's given the example of out. He's going to die, but we don't know where you're going. Would you like me to draw you a map? Okay? But now here's here's the thing. Now, on this side of the New Testament, if I were to ask you all the question, where is Jesus about to go, what's your answer going to be? Heaven. He's going to go to be with the Father, right? He's going to go back to the Father's kingdom. We get that. Disciples get that. Understanding ahead. They have an understanding of eternality after death. They didn't have a real coherent teaching on what happens when a person dies. With the, the introduction of Greek culture, courtesy of Alexander the Great, they started to adopt this idea of the place of death. The, the Sheol, as we read it in uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew. The New Testament, the word is Hades. Courtesy of, of the good old Shakespearean English. Jesus. Hell. That's not Hades. Hades is the place. First century Jewish understanding, when a person died, number one, the spirit hung around the body for three days, really dead. Okay? That's why when Jesus showed up four days after Lazarus died, the family was in full mourning because at that point the spirit had departed. He was dead. That's marked by the, the smell of decay that goes on when the body starts to, and that's why when Jesus gets to the tomb and he commands the stone to be rolled away and call Lazarus forward, he's told Lazarus' sister, don't, don't do it. He stinks. It's because of the decay, right? So no one, the spirit hangs around for about three days after a person dies, and then the spirit goes to the place of the dead. The place of the dead, there are two different rooms. You have Abraham's bosom, and you have a place of torment. That's what they're called, right? The Greeks called them the Elysian Fields and Tartarus, in case you wanted to know, right? A place of peace and a place of torment. Not a place of reward, a place of... People who were particularly virtuous, pick a standard, right? Because what are we going to measure it against? Right? We measure ourselves against somebody else. So people who are particularly virtuous would be welcome to Abraham's bosom, a place where they could, because that they did. People who were particularly evil, again, based on a floating scale, would go to a place of torment. We can ask about this understanding when Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all remember this one? Right? There was a man named Lazarus. He, he was poor. He was a beggar. He used to sit outside the rich man's gates and beg for food, and he was covered with sores. 
And and for those of us that are dog lovers, you know, the picture of the dog. No, no, no. The dogs were thinking, isn't that nice and tender? He's about to die. Dogs in Israel were scavengers, not pets. Okay, so they came to lick his wounds thinking, you know, a couple more minutes and I'll get to take a bite. Right? And then you had the rich man who had all the money in the his brothers, he had all this wealth, he had this big mansion, and he would just ignore beggar. Both of them die. And Lazarus, the poor man, he goes where? Abraham, where he is receiving peace and rest because he had such a hard life when he was alive. And the rich man who had such a great life and was obviously selfish and all that sort of stuff, he goes to the place of torment. Chained up and it's hot. E. Lazarus basking in the shade of a tree. And he cries out, Would you please send me down here just some water and my tongue? This is terrible. No, sorry, that's not how the rules work. That's the idea of the place of the dead. Now, before you all freak out and, and, and think that Jesus was teaching something contrary to something else that he taught, that was not the point of the parable. Jesus is not describing eternal life for us. He's not describing what hell's going to be like. He's not describing what heaven's going to be like. What he's doing in that particular parable is telling people that you're not going to reason somebody into the kingdom of heaven, right? Because you remember the, the rich man cried out, Lord, at least send Lazarus back to my brothers so they don't have to suffer this fate. What did Jesus say? They wouldn't listen if I did. If they didn't listen to the prophets, if they didn't, they ain't going to listen to a dead guy come back. Right? It's not about the information that we get that causes us to be saved or not saved. What Jesus is doing is he is teaching with a picture that the people would understand. This is the view of death for most Jews, including the disciples. So Jesus is talking about, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a room for you. Right? And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know how to get there. Why? Because they ain't but one way to get there, and that's to die. If we're dead, how are we going to know that we're following you? Because, you know, there was that one time that I walked past a beggar and I didn't put some basket, and then, then the time that I lied to my parents, and then there was the time that I really kept back money that I was supposed to spend on, oh, mom sent me to the grocery store, and I, it, right? When we're facing mortality, we tend to think about all the stuff that we didn't do right. How can I tell you? We don't know the way. I cannot blame the disciples for this question. I cannot look down on them. I cannot say, how could they not understand? The only way people get to the place of the dead is to die. Does Jesus expect us to go along with him? No. For just a second, let me go back to the end of chapter 13. Simon Peter to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. No, he does not expect them to die right away. How are we going to know where you went? 
We don't get it. Now look at chapter 14, verse 6. In answer to the question, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What? How do we get there? We don't know the way. Yeah, you do. I'm the way. Now, I could go into the, the Greek right there, that, that statement, I am. In John's Gospel, this is one of the, the biggest instructions. When I studied this the first time, it really blew my mind. There are at least seven times in John's Gospel where he makes the, Jesus makes the statement, I am. There are people who say Jesus never claimed to be God. John's Gospel, he does at least seven times. The words that are used in the Greek that, that John writes down in the are the words ego imi. Ego, we get the word e, right? Same Greek word. That means I, me. And then the word imi is the verb I am. So he says, I, I am, right? What's the big deal? When they translated the Old Testament, particularly, oh, I don't know, the book of Exodus, or Moses, is talking to the burning bush and says, who will I tell them has sent me? God responds by saying, tell them I am that I am. When they translated that into the Greek, guess how that translates? Ego imi. Same words. Jesus uses that construction when he says, I am the way. I am the way. You don't know the way, I am the way. If you know me, you know the way. I'm the way to the Father's house. If you had known me, he says, if you had known me. If you had listened to me. If you had followed me. If you had understood the things that I taught. You would know me. And then right there at the end of verse 7, he says, From now on you do know him and have seen him. How? Because Jesus is showing them the Father right here in the upper room. Then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Hey, Philip. If we would understand, it says here in chapter 14, if we would listen, if we would know him, if we would come to a point where we want to spend more time growing in that relationship with Jesus, studying God's Word. In fact, I can, I can in, in my head, I can see Jesus looking at the church and saying that same phrase. 
não. That ought to scare us a little bit when we consider Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, right? We want to know him. Let me drag this back to the message of peace. If we would seek to know Jesus a little better, same time they slept in the same room or under the same stars they spent how do we get to know him better yeah we need to read we need to study we need to pray we need to worship if we did that we get to know Jesus better now, how do we get, what do we get from getting to know Jesus better? We get that peace. Let me go back to the verses that I read. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is telling them not to be afraid right before he is about to leave them. In fact, he says, don't be troubled. If you understood what he was teaching, you'd be happy because I'm going to be with the Father. You would not be troubled. We get to know Jesus better. Way, there is one essential piece necessary for the study of God's Word that if we do not have, we cannot get to know Him better. That is the Spirit. Believers have. Right? If we claim the name of Christ, if we are children of God, we have the Holy Spirit, which means when we read this, we're not reading it in our power, but we have God helping us to understand it, right? Which means we're going to listen more clearly to the Spirit. Okay, so our relationship with the Spirit is going to get stronger as we listen and we submit more, and we're going to learn more about Jesus, we're going to understand His commands better because the Spirit's showing us. So we're going to be closer to Christ. And Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. If I have a picture in of the nature of God, I can see... And now, down here on the coast, there have been a lot of hurricanes, right? And I don't know if you're on Facebook, but when a hurricane comes in, there's always that redneck standing out there on the beach, pointing his finger at the storm and shouting, go away. Okay? Yeah, it's that's stupid, right? But if I understand who God is, then I can look at that hurricane and I can say you're insignificant to me. And that doesn't let me off the hook for being wise. Jesus says what well, man builds a barn and doesn't take into account the cost of the silo. Right? 
who plans a picnic and doesn't go buy the food. Right? We're supposed to be wise, not foolish. But I don't have to be troubled. Jesus says don't worry about what you're going to eat. He doesn't say don't go buy groceries. Okay? Don't worry about what you're going to wear. He doesn't say walk around naked. We're supposed to be wise and we're supposed to but we're supposed to act with our basis being that knowledge of who God is in relation to our trouble. Can't have peace if I end all be all in my life. I can't. Because I can't control anything. I can't even keep my shirt clean. But if I understand God's in control, if I truly, truly understand that he's going to take care of everything, that he's going to work all things together for my good, even if that, even if that means this body dies, I can have peace. No matter the circumstance, I can have peace. You can peace.